Hello, and thank you for joining us for our Watershed Sermon Podcast. Watershed is a worshiping community within Harderwijk Ministries. We gather at 9.45 a.m. in the Anchor Building on the Harderwijk campus on the corner of 160th and Lakewood in Holland, Michigan. We invite you to join us in person when you are able. To learn more about our Watershed community and Harderwijk Ministries, please visit harderwijk.com. We're in this longer series, Act Like Jesus, Do the Things that an athlete would do, not because working out is so much fun, but because it prepares you to enjoy playing the game. Being involved in the game, if you will, is about living for Christ right where you'll be Tuesday afternoon or or Thursday morning. But here we get to focus on some of the regular acts, uh, Bible study, prayer, worship together. This morning we're going to look at specifically... um, biblical community, and I'm going to look at a passage in Acts, but I want to kind of get the um, focus of how we get there. We're going to read in the book of Acts, and Acts, think of it as volume two of a two-volume work by the same author, Luke, who was a trained physician. He was Greek, he was trained as a medical doctor, but he came to faith and he became a medical missionary with Paul. Well, he writes two volumes. The first is kind of the life of Jesus. That's the gospel of Luke. And then volume two is like the first 30 years of the world Christian movement. We're like year 2000 so-and-so. Began right there in the book of Acts. And chapter one in Acts, he kind of makes a transition from volume one to volume two. And then it begins there's an outpouring in chapter 2. And you probably know that if you've been around church or read the uh, Bible much. In beginning of Acts chapter 2, they're gathered to pray. They're behind locked doors because they're frightened. They have no power or standing in the community. And the Holy Spirit moves in a way that's totally unexpected. So there's an outpouring. And then for the next several verses, the thing that happens is there is an ingathering. Peter stands up and he preaches. It says in verse uh, 41, and those who accepted this message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. So there's an outpouring, then there's an ingathering. Well, then the question is this, now what? And that's what I want to focus on. But get this flow of how we get there. After the life of Jesus, there's an outpouring, a move of the Holy Spirit. There's an ingathering. People are called to a personal commitment of faith. And then what does God do? And that's what I want to read about. Um, I'm going to read from Acts 2, 42 through 47. Uh, Feel free to keep your seat. If you would just uh, go as I read. Hear the word of God. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together, and they had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to one another who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes, and they ate together with glad and sincere hearts. They were praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Let's take a minute and pray right here, can't we? Father, I thank you that centuries ago in a different uh, time, in a different language, uh, a doctor 
who had come to faith in Christ, went back to check out the stories, talked with eyewitnesses, talked with the people that were there, got it straight, confirmed it, and then carefully wrote it down. And in an amazing way, Holy Spirit, you guided Luke's, the words that he wrote, superintended by you, were preserved across centuries. It's an amazing story. And now we have the opportunity to translate and to, to read, to study, to ponder. But most of all, I pray that, Spirit, you would illumine our hearts and minds, not simply to grasp the idea, but to be shaped by your presence as we come to this word. Guard your beloved people from my own brokenness and confusion. But may Jesus, the risen Savior, be seen clearly and powerfully. We thank you for his great love, and we pray in the mighty name of Jesus. And all of God's people said together, amen. So, outpouring, in-gathering, now what? Here's the answer, two words, biblical community. Look at what God does. This is why there's an outpouring. This is why there's an in-gathering. God wants to create this sort of biblical community. There are four key steps that I want to point to in this biblical community. The first we need to see is that it is the Spirit that is creating this. Nobody in the group had a master plan that day. No one had the motivation to take the next step or to figure out what we should do. There was no particular organizer. What happened, they gathered as usual, and God moved in a fresh, new, and powerful way. The Spirit is at work. Indeed, one of the helpful ways to read the whole book of Acts is to see the thread of the Holy Spirit at work in different places, crossing cultural boundaries, touching people, bringing people to Christ, challenging untruth, this thread of the Holy Spirit. The book of Acts, we call it the Acts of the Apostle, might better be called the Acts of the Spirit. Because you see, that's who's working. What we see in biblical community is always the reflection of the Holy Spirit of God at work in the lives of real people. It's a relational gathering. You will see that in this thing, they, they weren't given a book of order or a plan or a program. There's no charter. There's no uh, constitution or central leader. They just gather together. And you'll see in the passage, they're sharing meals. They're worshiping together. They're meeting together. There's no big plan at this point. But as things come and go, they find ways to care for one another and it's very, very helpful, this life shared. It's a relational gathering where they're sharing this life. They're meeting in that temple, doing all these things. And all this works together because God's the one who does it. It works together for them to live God's kingdom mission. They're growing deep in the gospel. That's the apostles' teaching. They're um, seeing miracles. That's God moving in power that raises questions. What's going on here? They're serving and taking care for one another. Many new people are coming to faith. Kind of picture that, what it would look like. They are out there in the community, not because they represent one voice among many, but they are just wherever they are, in school, at work, in the neighborhood association, doing what's available, being a part of life. For them, it was worshiping in the temple every day. 
They have no recognized power in terms of the world. They are not the Roman army. They are not the Jewish priests or the ruling Pharisees or Sadducees. They are just folks. They're together, and the Spirit is at work. All this is enabling that kind of mission. They're a real presence in the world that they were a part of. A real presence. So, the way I would summarize that is that the Spirit is creating a setting where there are disciples who make disciples. Disciples who make disciples. Think about it, friends. I remember being at a mission conference, a powerful, life-changing time, but there was a big banner at the front, and it said, Go ye therefore and teach all nations. Now, if the mission is to teach, why do you start? Schools. But you know what? The mission is not to only teach. It's not to simply exchange ideas to give ideas that motivate behaviors. Jesus said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, you go. And go means a change of location. Go be somewhere. Go and make, what's the word? Disciples. Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. Friends, I want to tell you, the Great Commission is to go and make disciples. What you see in Acts 2, 42, 47 is bigger than a school. It's shared life. It's making disciples. Now, Jesus was clear. If you diagram that, I'm probably the only guy here who's diagrammed that passage in Greek. They taught us that in seminary. You'd see that it's go and make disciples, and then there's two points below that. And the subpoints are baptize, lead them to Christ, have them initiated into the life of the church, and then teach them to obey. But teach them obey is not the end point. It's an example of the end point of making disciples. So you see, the Spirit is creating a living, breathing, biblical community that's about disciples who make disciples. And what do those disciples do? Well, they make disciples. And what can you say about the disciples that the disciples made? They make disciples. How many times could I click that remote and what would be the next thing up? It's the Spirit creating disciples who make disciples, 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 who go and make disciples, who go and make disciples, who go and make disciples, and about 2,000 clicks down, we'd be to us. That's our purpose. An outpouring, an ingathering, and then a collection of people who make disciples. God didn't just start a school. He didn't just start a social service agency. Now, the church has had dramatic impact in the life of every community where it's been, often for the better. But there's more than just a social service agency or a business or a political party or a military brigade. There's more going on here than the power of the world in God's hands. There's a move of God shaping people who like salt and light move into every... People will move. 
into the military brigades. Disciples will move into political parties. Disciples will open businesses and hire people. I'm listening to a book about um, Chick-fil-A, and it's been exciting to remember the Truett Cathy story. What he wanted to do was share hospitality and cultivate his people for a particular environment. He wasn't doing evangelism. He was living in the business world with a heart captured by Jesus. That's what it looks like in business. It'll make schools different. It'll make neighborhood associations different. But it's about being a community of disciples who are making disciples. Now, I made an interesting discovery this week. Have you ever heard of the Himalayan Conservation and Research Institute? What comes to mind when you hear Himalayan Conservation and Research Institute? Oh, it must be about those beautiful mountains. You know what the address is? It's on Prairie View Drive in Ames, Iowa. Now, I'm sure what they do in Ames, Iowa is very important for learning about the Himalayans and preserving that and all of that kind of stuff. But you see, the office in Iowa is an institution that supports something more important. Think about a base camp. Where would you rather be? In an institution or a base camp? Biblical community creates base camps. Now, institutions follow because they're helpful. But I want you to ponder for a moment the difference between an institution that supports something that happens and the base camp that equips and prepares and does it. I remember listening to a preacher one time talk about old wineskins and new wine. You see, that's an example of institutions and base camp. Wineskins kind of contain it. But what it's all about is the wine. That was Jesus saying that when there's new wine, you need new wineskins. When there's a new community of disciples, there may be need for a, a new institution. Theologically, we've talked about visible church or invisible church. You know, you can create a building with symbols where people gather and they sing and have activities. The invisible church is God at work. And what you hope, what I hope, what we're committed to is that within the visible institutions that help support it and guide it, you have the great move of God, the invisible. Another way I like to illustrate this, I've got a neat little car with a small four-cylinder motor. If I were to pull that four-cylinder motor out and give it to you and say, go to the grocery store and pick something up, and then I took a gallon of gasoline and poured it out on the parking lot and lit it. You would think I was loony. I hope. But when you put a motor and gasoline together, what do you get? It works. I want to tell you, I'm fine with institutions. You need support. You need form. You need order. You need accountability. You need to distribute authority because we're all sinners. And no one of us can be trusted with everything. You need that institution. But you can have an institution and not have the fire. 
What Jesus is creating in Acts 2, 42 through 47 through the Holy Spirit is a base camp, a place where it happens and works. So we see in this base camp, they're making disciples, and these disciples are in mission, and they invite and welcome people to discipleship. They invite people. Next week, we're going to talk about spiritual gifts. And these are empowerments of God at work in your life to serve other people and to glorify God. Spiritual gifts have nothing to do with your ego. Turn to the person next to you and say, I'm coming next week. Spiritual gifts have nothing to do with your ego. They have everything to do about the work of God teaching you how to love and serve and glorify God. It's amazing. You see, this is what Jesus is, is building. A lot of times when I'm interacting, I spent a time out of ministry and worked in a CPA firm. It was very interesting to not be identified as a pastor for a while, to kind of listen to conversations. And as I listen to folks, I still hear it now, there's this sense that the church, that's one of those nice organizations. It, it's the, the institution of niceness. You kind of get together and you sing, and particularly sing those songs for them old people, and you do stuff for the kids so they learn to be polite and nice. And, you know, you just, you have a Christmas Eve service. You know, every time we come to church, they're talking about the resurrection. Yeah. That's because you only come once a year. Yeah, it's an institution of niceness. And I'm not opposed to church being nice. We ought to try it more often, I would say. But it's also about far more than just being nice. You see, you can explain an institution of niceness from what we call the imminent frame, from the closed box. It's just people being nice. What you see in Acts 2, the box gets open. And there's a transcendent God who moves among real people in real time, in real life. So making disciples who are disciples in mission and who invite and welcome other people to mission. This is how it moves through the course of history. This is how cultures are impacted. This is how new mission fields are opened. I took a, a, a moment in preparing this and I've loved to watch this. This has been part of my study through the course of life, to see these moments that are like Acts 2, 42 through 47, but 100 years later, 200 years later. You see, through the course of history, if you have a heart to see it, if you have an inquisitive mind, you'll see these moments where Acts 2, 42 through 47 happens all over again in new and powerful ways. I could talk forever, but I won't. Let me tell you about a couple of them. One, in biblical community and history, have you ever thought about the monasteries as gatherings of biblical community? St. Benedict, in the moment of history where Rome is collapsing, I always love to think about 476 AD, the Germans invade Rome. My peeps show up and there goes the neighborhood, right? Rome collapses, but God calls Benedict. And they step a little bit out of community, but they share life and discipled life. It's like Acts 42 through 47, when the culture is collapsing around you. And they're able to preserve learning. They're able to preserve the Christian faith. They're able to disciple the next generation so it continues on and on. 
I ended up studying the life of John Calvin pretty intensely, and I was amazed to discover that where he was pastor, there's an interesting story about he got where he got uh, to do that. But John Calvin, as pastor in Geneva, became one of these Acts 42 through 47 moments. There was a, the Reformation going forward. And, and let me uh, say that in most universities now, and in most conversations, John Calvin is considered a little dangerous. That's because we typically only learn a little bit of him. There's a biography I know about John Calvin that I encourage you to read. Note to self, I wrote it. <laughs> and I just finished my taxes. You want to know how much I got in royalties last year? Thirty dollars. So I'm keeping my day job, folks. But I've wanted to learn more about John Calvin. And they were figuring out how to live Acts 2, 42 through 47 in Geneva, Switzerland. And what you perhaps have not heard is that in 1555, or in the 1550s, um, Geneva almost doubled in population from taking in refugees. People who'd given their life to Christ were persecuted and fleeing persecuting areas. They found their way to Geneva. They got involved in that biblical community. By 1955, the church in Geneva had planted five churches in France. By 1562, what is that, seven years later, more than 2,000 churches, biblical communities, had been planted in France from one church in Geneva. Missionaries went as far away as um, Brazil. Missionaries went to Scotland, and American history is different. You begin to see that what happened in Geneva, good and bad, we could talk about that, but what happened in Geneva was an Acts 2, 42 through 47 moment. Another one that I am very fascinated by, I have a sister who's a Moravian church musician. And the Moravian churches, I don't know if you're at all familiar with their history, they began in the mid-1700s around a prayer meeting. There was a, a wealthy guy, Count Zinzendorf. I always look forward to a chance to say his name. Zinzendorf. you got to love it. He'd come to faith in Christ, and he began to open up his estate to, again, poor folks who were persecuted Christians, brought them together. At one night, there was a lot of tension in the community with all these different faiths and beliefs. He brought them together. They began to pray. And the records are interesting to read. They speak August 13, 1727. It was that specific. They had a visitation from God, and that prayer meeting lasted to the next morning and to the day after. Some of them had to take a break and go take care of the cows, but it continued. Others had to make sure folks were fed. They had to go back to school, but come back. That prayer meeting continued 24-7 for over a century. Missionaries were sent out. Some of them got as far away as the, the furthest reaches of the earth, Pennsylvania and North Carolina. John Wesley would write about being an Anglican missionary from England to Georgia. And while on the ship going across the Atlantic Ocean, there's a storm. He fears for his life. And he sees a Moravian family, a mom and dad and kids. And he watches how they respond to the storm. And John Wesley says, I was a missionary, but I needed to be converted. Two years after that time, after being discipled by a Moravian preacher, Peter Buller, 
John Wesley's heart would be strangely warmed. And all of Methodists, Methodism forms from that. I love the Clapham gathering. Uh, William Wilberforce, the middle 1800s. Perhaps you've never heard of Wilberforce. Here was a wealthy young man. This is a great story about a rich young ruler who said yes to Jesus rather than hold on to his money. In 1780, he graduates from Cambridge and is elected to Parliament. 1784, four years later, somebody shares the gospel with him and commits his life to Christ. He has what he refers to as a deep conversion. And he begins to share faith and growth and discipling with a group of people in their parish. It's like a small group meeting within the church there at Clapham. Five years after his conversion, he introduces the first bill in Parliament to abolish slavery. 1807, that's 18 years later, Great Britain abolishes the slave trade. You see, out of that Clapham gathering, out of that biblical community, a guy goes to be salt and light. The world has changed. At that same time, the United States as well stopped the shipment and and sale of African Americans. 1822, Wilberforce helps form the Anti-Slavery Society in Great Britain. Next year, he launches a campaign for the full emancipation of slaves. And by 1833, 44 years after the first bill he introduced, 44 years later, the Emancipation Act is passed by Parliament. And through all the British dominions, enslaved people are granted freedom. We had a civil war to let that issue get settled. England had a group of people in biblical community to persevere and to pray and to encourage for 44 years. Do you see why I pray for the outpouring, the ingathering, creation of biblical community. Another favorite one of mine, and this is another German word I love to say, Finkenwalde. It was the underground seminary training pastors from 1935 to 1937 in Germany. See, Adolf Hitler had been uh, elected as chancellor in 33, and already the cloud of darkness was moving over Europe. For those years, Bonhoeffer would take students They would learn to sing the hymns of faith. They would learn to meditate on the scripture, not do academic Bible study, but that's another story. They learned to meditate as the Moravians did on the scripture. There's a connection. Out of this time, Bonhoeffer would write Life Together in Cost of Discipleship. The Nazis would find him. They would close the seminary. He would move to New York to teach. But as soon as he got to New York City in June of 1939, he wrote, I have come to the conclusion that I made a mistake in coming to America this time. I must live through this difficult period in our national history along with the people of Germany. I will have no right to participate in the reconstruction of Christian life in Germany after the war if I do not share the trials of this time with my people. Bonhoeffer got back on a ship left New York City on the last boat to go from the United States to Germany before World War II. You may know his story. He eventually was imprisoned because he joined a conspiracy to assassinate Hitler, and he died in a concentration camp, hanged. 
two weeks before American troops arrived. How do you live like that? You don't do it alone. Bonhoeffer discovered the secret of growing in discipleship. It was biblical community. It was having a heart and mind settled and focused, navigating the issues of life in conjunction with other people. Friends, I want to tell you, as I think about um, this sort of biblical community, we need to remember it's given by God to people who are praying. It's not our prayers that create it. But if you look at history, as people pray, God in his mercy will give it to those who cry out. You see a flourishing of a vibrant personal and corporate life. Often that happens within a negative and dominant culture or an anti-God issue. Out of that biblical community, the whole institution of chattel slavery, that wickedness, was crushed. Out of that biblical community came a hope for missions, came an order for life. It has an outsized impact on the surrounding culture. Now, none of these communities were ever perfect people. Let me tell you something. You can find bad things from John Calvin or Count Zinzendorf or even uh, Wilbur Wilberforce. These are imperfect people pointing to something beyond them, the grace of the living God. They seem to be fruitful for a season. They seem to become institutions, and then you need a new pouring out of the fire. Acts 42, 2, 42 through 47. In every day and time, in every place and life and culture. Will you pray with me for that? Will we have eyes to, to see this? not only in the scripture, but in history? Will we have a mind to inquire? I, I want to tell you, I could tell you story upon story upon story. Will we have a heart to receive and to be that? I hope the Holy Spirit has wet the appetite of your soul and you're praying, come Lord Jesus, renew our hearts in this moment. I invite you to take a step towards more than you might have yet known in life together. What could that mean for our day and time? I want to tell you, right now in China, the underground church movement is another expression of Acts 2, 42 through 47 life. I don't know if you've followed, there's a pastor, Wang Yi, he's now imprisoned. But these home churches bearing fruit under the worst of impressions, missionaries from my particular denomination bring back stories about Acts 2, 42 through 47 communities in Iran of all places? Imagine, what could God do? Have you seen the movie Jesus Revolution? That was a moment, I know, because I was in North Carolina, not California, but I was swept into the kingdom by the grace of Jesus in that way a year ago in Wilmore, Kentucky. God moves. And part of what you see in those moments, in all the other things going on, some of it good, some of it bad, but God is building biblical community, disciples who make disciples who make disciples. Let's pray for a moment. Father, I thank you for your kindness that in our brokenness you have yet loved us and you have poured out Holy Spirit to guide and empower us. I pray that you would give us a, a hunger and a thirst, not just for a consumer-based church where we can show up and get what we need and head out and do what we want, but that there would be an outpouring of your grace that causes an ingathering of hearts and then a knitting together 
in an expression of, of biblical community, of life shared, of life taken to our community and outside these walls. We thank you that right here, Lord Jesus, you want to meet us and shape us. And so we pray, come Lord Jesus. I thank you for this moment where you have given to us the Lord's Supper to come, to share, to receive. So be present and build what only you can. Thank you for your grace and kindness. Be with us, we pray, in Jesus' mighty name. Amen? Amen. Thank you for listening. To learn how to get involved in our watershed community or how to support Harderwijk Ministries, please visit us at harderwijk.com.